0: This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and le'ilunishmas Yehudit, Ba'at, Yehoshua, Mordechai, and Leah. This is Judith Cantor, the mother of our dear friend Mark Cantor. And Judith passed away last week at the age of 93. She was a remarkable woman, a scion of an illustrious rabbinic family. May her soul be elevated in heaven. This week is Parsha Zva'ezchanan. And it's a very special week for many reasons, but for us on the Parsha Podcast, it is a sign that we're about to hit a very important milestone, and that is that next week, which is Parshas Eikev, Devarim vaAschanan Eikev, next week is going to mark, please, doubt with the help of the Almighty, the streak of not missing a single week on the Parsha Podcast. This is the sixth year of the Parsha podcast, but next week is going to be, please God, two years in a row without missing a single week. And I think that's, you know, our greatest accomplishment. Our greatest accomplishment is not that we have some superb, in my opinion, superb Parsha podcasts that we do together, but it's the consistency. And I know many of y'all don't miss a single week. And do me a favor, if you're one of the heroes or heroines, one of the heroes of the Parsha podcast that doesn't miss a single week, send me an email so I can enjoy that experience together. You know, some weeks I think the content is superb, it's fantastic, it's terrific, it's just the best that we can produce from the Torch Center. And some weeks, you know, it's not that great, it's passable, it's okay, I got a feeling last week, Parshas DeVarm, it wasn't my best stuff. You know, it's like a, a baseball pitcher, doesn't have his best stuff. It's good enough. It's passable. I asked my friend Howard to rate it. He told me it was, a, it was an 8 out of 10, which I thought was a very fair and generous rating. Some weeks it's terrific. Some weeks it's excellent. Some weeks it's passable. But if we get together every single week and we study the Parshas together, I think that Is the greatest accomplishment. And next week, please God, we're going to celebrate that important milestone together. But that's next week. Parshas Ekev. This week, it's Parshas Vayeschanan. And we are continuing Moshe's grand speech before he dies. And Moshe weaves an exquisite tapestry. He's looking back into the past. He's looking forward into the future. There's rebuke. He's reliving the history of your reminding the nation, encouraging the nation, guiding the people, preparing them for the day after, preparing them for the conquest of Canaan and for the challenges ahead. But the parasha begins with Moshe telling the nation what he tried to do to get God to reverse his decree that Moshe will not enter the land. He begged God, he pleaded, he beseeched the Almighty to enter the land, but he was denied. Joshua will leave the people into the land, but Moshe will be able to see the land, he'll witness the land, he'll be able to experience the land as an outsider, but he will not cross over the Jordan. Now we know that the reason why Moshe was barred from entering the land It goes back to the book of Numbers, chapter 20. There was no water, and God tells Moshe, take your staff and go speak to the rock that had previously emitted water. Instead of speaking to the rock, Moshe struck the rock, and for that sin, Moshe was disallowed from entering the land. If you think about it, it's kind of strange. This doesn't seem like it's a terrible sin at all, and it raises a question, why is the sin of Moshe striking the rock, why is that worthy of barring Moshe from entering the land? And to further complicate and compound the problem, we remember, we recall, this is not the first time that Moshe was extracting water from a rock. In fact, looking back, we have a whole series of water-related crises in the story. So all the way back in chapter 15 of the book of Exodus, right after the splitting of the sea, the Jewish people arrive at a city called Mara, and the waters of Mara are bitter and they complain to Moshe and God shows Moshe a stick and he throws it into the water and the waters are sweetened. That was a crisis, three days with no water. They arrive in chapter 17 of the book of Exodus in the city of Rephidim. Again, there's no water and God instructs Moshe to take your staff and go strike a rock and it will emit water, which is what happened. He takes a stick, he takes a staff, he hits the rock and water comes out. And then in Numbers chapter 20, in the wilderness of Zin, Miriam dies and the well that was in her merit dries up. And Moshe again is told, to take his staff, the same staff that he had previously struck the same rock with. But this time he's told, don't hit the rock, speak to the rock. Instead of speaking, he strikes the rock. And for this sin, Moshe was barred from entering the land. So it's a very similar sort of crisis. The nation is stuck in the wilderness, in the desert without any water. And God gives Moshe a very similar solution. Take your staff and go engage with the rock. Get water from the rock. In one instance, in Exodus chapter 17, the proper thing was to take your staff and strike the rock. In the second instance, Numbers 20, striking the rock was such a severe violation that it precluded Moshe from entering the land. And if you think about it, it's the almost identical situation. What changed? Why was it appropriate in Exodus chapter 17 to strike the rock, but it was so irrevocably inappropriate to do so in Numbers chapter 20, 40 years later, after Miriam dies, oh, you struck the rock, the same thing you did 40 years ago. Sorry, you are disallowed from entering. So we have two questions here. What did Moshe do wrong to begin with? What's so bad about striking the rock? And why was the solution for this water crisis, why was it so different than the previous one? Now, we know, of course, we've mentioned this in the past, that this whole subject of what Moshe did wrong is endlessly debated in the commentators. In fact, the Arachayim, back in Numbers 20, he enumerates 10 different explanations offered by the early sages and the early commentators to explain what exactly Moshe did wrong. And he concludes that none of these reasons are sufficient. It remains a great mystery. Until today, I guess, right now on the Parsha podcast, we're going to demystify it. Let me tell you the most convincing and persuasive explanation that I heard about this problem. And I think that this idea on its own, it's very powerful and useful and interesting, and like I said, convincing and persuasive, but it's going to open up for us an entire subject that we'll see in our parsha. but I think it also will contain with it some really powerful, and useful lesson. So this idea is going to resolve the whole question of this water crisis and what Moshe did and why he was punished and how it all fits in, but it's also going to open up a portal for us to all manner of other interesting angles and approaches. This persuasive explanation will show us where Moshe went wrong, why the second water crisis was different than the third water crisis, why Exodus 17 is different than Numbers 20. And also, it will show the cause and effect. It will show why specifically this sort of mistake that Moshe made, why it was fitting for this to cause him to be removed as the leader of the nation. It goes like this. Exodus Chapter 17. It's a couple of days after the Exodus. Until very recently, this was a nation of slaves. At that time, the proper thing for these people to witness was a stone being struck, being hit, being whipped. The nation, they had just left Egypt. Just recently, they were slaves to Pharaoh. And the language of slaves is hitting and whipping. That's what they knew, and that's how they understood communication. And therefore, at that juncture in the nation's history, what was appropriate for them to witness is the rock being whipped and the rock obeying and emitting water. That was Exodus chapter 17. In Numbers chapter 20, after Miriam died, and again, there's a rock, and we need water, and again, Moshe has a staff. But it's 40 years later. Over the course of these 40 years, the nation has been elevated. They're no longer a nation of slaves. They're a kingdom of priests. They're a holy nation. They're a nation of princes. They are noble. They are civilized. They are elevated. They are a distinct people. They are a refined people. They've gotten Torah. They witnessed Sinai. They've been eating manna. They spent 40 years studying Torah under the tutelage of Moshe. Now, the tactics and the means and the methods are more elevated as well. Now, it's appropriate for them to witness communication only with words. In Exodus, striking the rock was appropriate. By the time numbers comes around, it's 40 years later. Now it's time to speak striking is improper. So first of all, this is a powerful insight. And that is that the tactics that worked at one point in time, they may not work at a different point in time, or they may be inappropriate for a different time, a different place, a different setting, a different situation. What worked for the nation in the past may not be the right thing to do right now. As you mature, as an individual, as a people, as a nation. Everything has to mature alongside that. There must be a concomitant upgrade of means, of tactics, of modes of communication. Everything has to be commensurate with where you are holding at that point. And therefore Moshe's mistake was that at least on his level, of course, it's hard for us to judge Moshe. But perhaps the mistake was that Moshe failed to upgrade and to change and to alter the tactics. It worked in the past. Yes, this is a different nation. You have to recognize that and you have to change the tools that you're going to deploy. And if you think about it, this may also explain why the punishment fits the crime the punishment of Moshe being removed, being deposed as the leader of the nation, and Joshua's going to replace him, perhaps this sin of striking the rock, and according to the way we understand it, this sin of failing to change the tactics, this demonstrates that for this particular nation, In this point in history, this generation of Jews, Moshe was not the most fitting leader for the generation entering the land. Of course, Moshe was the right person to take us out of Egypt and to shepherd us throughout the wilderness for 40 years and to give us the Torah and to oversee the nation that was being transformed from slaves of Pharaoh to slaves of God. But when he, after 40 years, is still striking the rock... Maybe that shows that, to a certain extent, Moshe is still fighting yesterday's war, yesterday's battle. And to a certain extent, if we can even say this, Moshe is a little bit out of touch with the new generation, of course, on his level. And therefore, it's fitting to give the people a leader that's more in sync with this particular generation. Thus, even though, of course, Moshe is greater than Joshua, the face of Moshe is like the sun, the face of Joshua is like the moon, Joshua is Moshe's disciple, but for this particular generation, actually, Joshua is a better fit. Joshua is more suited. Joshua wasn't a better or a worse leader, but he was more suitable for this particular generation the Talmud tells us that Samuel in his generation was like Yiftach in his. We've had many leaders over the course of our history. And Samuel, pound for pound, was greater than Yiftach. But every leader was fitting, was suitable for their particular generation. And Moshe was more fitting for the nation that left Egypt and that spent the time in the wilderness and that received the Torah and ate the manna. And Joshua was a better fit for the nation that crossed over the Jordan, entered Canaan and engaged with those challenges. So our questions are resolved. What was Moshe's sin? It seems like it's pretty innocuous. His sin was that he used the old tactics with the new generation. What changed from Exodus 17 to Numbers 20? Well, the people did. And why was he removed? Joshua was a better candidate for this particular generation. Moshe is the right person to take them out of Egypt, to teach them Torah, to shepherd them throughout the wilderness. But Joshua is the right one to lead them into Canaan. And if this is true, it raises a different question. If Joshua indeed was a more fitting candidate, why is Moshe at the beginning of our parasha so eager? He's pleading with God. He's begging God. He's praying 500 plus times to enter the land. If Moshe was not the ideal candidate to lead the people, it seems kind of selfish for him to beg God to reconsider to beg God to revoke the decree that Moshe won't cross over the Jordan. This seems to violate everything we know about Moshe. Moshe is completely not selfish. He is completely selfless. He is willing to die multiple times. He's willing to die to give up his life for the people. So Moshe is demonstrating repeatedly that he's not selfish at all. If Josh was a better leader, It made sense. It would be appropriate for Moshe to step down. What is he begging about? So the commentaries tell us something staggering. Moshe wanted God to revoke the decree. But Moshe wanted to enter the land as a civilian, as a lay person. Moshe was arguing God, I will cede control of his people. I will hand over the reins to Joshua. But I want to enter the land as a regular commoner, as a regular individual. He was willing to accept a demotion, to be subordinate to Joshua. And that was his request. I won't be the leader, but let me enter the land. The Talmud tells us that Moshe wanted to enter the land... Not to eat from its fruits. Not to get a juicy falafel. He wanted to perform the mitzvot. That's what the Talmud says. It seems that the obvious reason why Moshe wanted to enter the land was to lead the people. Talmud says no. The reason why he wants to enter is to do the mitzvot, is to experience the spiritual delight of the land of Israel. Moshe was willing to cede control to Joshua. But I think this idea resolves the whole subject of Moshe in the land. Moshe wants to enter, but he's barred for the reason that Joshua is a better fit to lead this particular cohort. And every generation has to find the leader that speaks to them, that relates to them, that understands them. Moshe, he was still striking the rock to the people to whom this was not the ideal form of communication. So this is the idea that we want to pull out of the beginning of the parsha, And if we fast forward a little bit towards the middle of the parsha, it seems like this idea surfaces again. We read in chapter 4, verse 41 and 42, 43, how Moshe designated three cities on the east bank of the Jordan, one in the land of the Reubenites, one in the land of the tribe of Gad, and one in the tribe of Manasseh. three cities that are going to serve as cities of refuge for accidental murderers. Someone kills accidentally, they must relocate to one of these six cities three on the east bank, three on the west bank of the Jordan. And Moshe and our designated these three cities on the east bank of the Jordan. And the verse tells us in 4.42, if a murderer kills accidentally, unintentionally, and he doesn't hate him, not from yesterday, not from the day before, he shall flee to one of these cities and he shall live. Vinas, elachasmen ail, he shall flee to one of these cities, va and he shall live. Now the Talmud tells us something really amazing. The Talmud tells us, what does it mean that he shall flee to one of these cities and live? Says the Talmud, the Book of Marcos, page 10a. Made sure that these cities are livable. Made sure that everything that you need to live is found in the city. So what does that mean? I don't know. Municipal services, defense against invaders, a good water supply, Chinese food, whatever it is, whatever is needed to live in a city, make sure that this city has all the amenities. Continues the Talmud. Listen to this. Continues the Talmud. If the accidental murderer... Is a student studying Torah in the academy, and the student has to go to the city of refuge, has to relocate to one of these six cities. His teacher, his rabbi, has to go with him. Must also be exiled. Why? The verse says, chapter four, verse forty-two. He should live. And without Torah, there's no spiritual life. And therefore, part of the requirement in our Parsha that tells us that you have to make these cities livable, they have to be spiritually livable as well. And how could you live without Torah? And how could you live without your teacher? And how could you live without your rabbi? And therefore, if you're a murderer, accidental of course, and you must go to the city of refuge, you must be exiled, your rabbi, your teacher, your Torah teacher must come with you. The Rambam, when he talks about these laws, he adds that the life of a scholar and someone who seeks wisdom Without a teacher, without Torah, it's no life. You're like a dead person. And therefore the verse says you have to make these cities livable. What does it mean? What's included in the amenities, in the services of a city is that the teacher, the Torah teacher of the murderer must come along to make the experience livable for the student. Now there's an obvious question the commentators ask these cities, these six cities, were established cities. They had shuls and schools and yeshivos and bagel shops. They were fully developed cities. Certainly, there were competent rabbis in these cities of refuge. So why did the accidental murderer, why did he have to condemn his personal rabbi, to go with him. Couldn't he study? Couldn't the accidental murderer find a local rabbinic authority, a local Torah teacher to study with? You kill someone accidentally, you go to the city of refuge, and you find a new rabbi, find someone else to study with. Why does he have to condemn his rabbi from back home, to move to the city of refuge to teach him Torah to make his experience more livable. And the medieval commentators say something staggering. They say, because there's a reason why the accidental murderer chose that particular rabbi. He may have checked out some of the academies. He may have listened in on the lectures of a bunch of rabbis, and this one spoke to him. This one had the style, had the personality, had the way of teaching that connected with him. And therefore, you have to give him the same experience, the same standard of Torah learning in his now new home in the city of refuge to fulfill the verse and instructs us to make these cities livable. If you follow what's happening over here, there's something absolutely astonishing being revealed. Someone kills accidentally. They have to hustle to the city of refuge. They have to relocate, grab their stuff, and move right away. And they get there, and there are plenty of, of synagogues, of schools, of rabbis, of yeshivos, of Torah teachers. The city is well-stocked with rabbinic talent. But the kind of rabbi that he liked the most, the experience of studying from his personal teacher, that's just better. And therefore, it's not a fulfillment of the requirement to make these cities livable because it's not livable if you have a subpar Torah experience. If you have a Torah experience, there's a teacher. But it's not ideal. It's not the best of the best. It doesn't really connect to the deepest level to you. This city is not livable. And therefore, just like having no Torah, that means there's no spiritual life and therefore the city is not livable? Having subbar, okay, it's tolerable, it's mediocre, but okay, that will do? That is not livable. A very powerful idea here. The Torah requires us to make these cities of refuge livable on every level. It has to be spiritually livable and without Torah... Well, that's like spiritual death. But not only that, having a teacher, but it's not perfect. It's not an ideal fit. That is the equivalent of it being not livable. It's the equivalent to a certain extent of spiritual death. And therefore, the Torah requires that the teacher must make that city livable for the accidental murderer, and he must relocate. And this idea is found elsewhere in our literature. We're told that the experience of Torah study must really connect to the person studying. You have to have an environment that you feel it could flourish in. And if you feel like this place is not ideal, you have to find a place that is ideal. And if you find that the particular type of learning is just not connecting with you, that experience is spiritually unlivable. That is what our sages tell us. And of course, this raises some questions. If you asked us, we would say, well, you have a rabbi, you have something to study, you have some books, there's a decent library, there's a decent teacher there. Why is it so critical that you find your specific person to teach you, why is that so critical? It seems almost like a luxury. The verse doesn't say that if they have to make these cities luxurious. It has to be just livable. Why is it unlivable if you don't have your particular rabbi teaching you? So my grandfather, blessed memory, said something very powerful And it relates to an idea that we talk about a lot here on the Parsha podcast, and that is that there really are two elements of our connection with Torah. There is the general requirement that we will have to adhere to all 613 mitzvot, and that is universal. Everyone has the same 613. Everyone is obligated by the same 613. 613. But there's also the individual Torah. There is a corner, there's an element, there's a part of Torah that is yours and yours individually. And it distinguishes you from your fellow Jew. At Sinai, there were really two revelations. There was the universal revelation of Torah, and that was identical for every individual. But the Midrash tells us that every individual had a second, like a sister revelation of Torah that was tailored and individualized and completely unique to them. There was one mass revelation, and then there were 600,000 individual revelations a tailored understanding of Torah, a tailored interpretation of Torah. That was at Sinai. What about post-Sinai? What is our relationship with Torah, both the general Torah and the individualized Torah? What is our relationship with that since Sinai? The answer is that this chain continues when you go study Torah by your teacher, the objective is twofold, to understand and to connect and to absorb the general Torah, the universal Torah, the part of Torah that is the same for everyone. And it's also imperative, when you study Torah by your teacher, to find a way to discover your individual Torah that's tailored to you that's unique to you, that is individualized. And when you go study, you go apprentice by a great sage who studied by a great sage, who studied by a great sage all the way back to Moses at Sinai, in effect. You are adding another link to an unbroken chain Then it goes all the way back to Sinai. The Talmud tells us, if you teach your grandson Torah, so you teach your son, and you teach your grandson Torah, it's the equivalent of a revelation at Sinai. This is the Talmud of the book of Kiddushin on page 30a. Once we have you contributing three links in this chain, you are continuing And you are forging a link back to the chain of transmission of Torah all the way back to Sinai. But there's an important revelation here. Your objective, when you're adding your link, it's not someone else's link, it's your link. It has your name on it, it has your spiritual fingerprint on it. how am I adding my individual link to this chain? It's mine. It has my name in it. It's unique to me. How can you accept individualized Torah from your teacher when it's individualized and you are different than your teacher? That is the experience of accepting Torah from a teacher. It's finding a way to tailor an individual's personality and their quirks, eccentricities, unique skills, unique personality, and finding a way to fit that and to determine what is their own unique contribution and unique revelation from Sinai. If you go study by a teacher, and all you have is generalized knowledge of Torah, but it doesn't really connect to you as an individual, you don't have your own interpretation, you don't have your own understanding, it's just generic, of course, it's wonderful, you have received a tradition going back to Sinai, but you haven't. Added your link. Cause that's not your link. Unless the Torah connects with you in such a fundamental level, where it's just matched perfectly to who you are, and you find your little niche, your little corner in Torah that's yours, then you add your link to this chain. And that's really the nature of Torah study. It's trying to find a way not just to learn about the general Torah, continuing this tradition and transmission of half of the sign of Revelation, it's finding a way to really make it click on a deeply personal, on a profoundly individual level. And once you have that, your link is forever added to this glorious chain. And that's why it's so important to get it right. Right? If the place that you're in just doesn't fit, if the subject matter that you're studying doesn't connect, if the teacher that you're studying under doesn't really speak to you, this is a matter of life and death. This is unlivable. Because if you come to this world and you don't find a way to add yourself to this great chain, well, if you're not added to the chain, you're removed From the chain. And what's it like to be severed from the chain going back to Sinai? You are not connected to this critical reservoir of spiritual life. It's a very deep idea here. This is life and death. This is life and death. The verse says you have to live there. This has to be a livable city. And if the environment of you studying Torah is not ideal, we don't say, well, it's okay, it's good enough. The verse says, the Talmud says, it's not livable. And now we know why. Because the objective of Torah study is twofold. It's to connect yourself to the generalized revelation at Sinai and to discover what is your unique aspect of Torah that is your unique revelation and adding your link to that chain? And to really discover that, it has to be the ideal conditions. You have to have the ideal experience. Someone says, "Well, just the place that you're in—it's just—it's just not doing it for you. It's not. It's not airy enough. The windows are too small. The lighting is not ideal. The books, well, the reading quality is not terrific. What you're studying is not really ideal. It doesn't speak to you. It doesn't talk to your heart. If your teacher is just—it's okay, but it's not great. That's going to imperil a matter, a subject." of life and death. Because if you don't add your chain, if you don't carve out your own legacy in Torah, there's a part of this chain that you are not connected to. And that is absolutely terrifying. And this explains why his teacher has to go with them. If you go to exile, your teacher must come with because otherwise, it's not livable. And finding the right fit is life and death. Otherwise, you're not linked to Sinai. Now, of course, this makes demands of the teacher as well. One of the responsibilities of being a Torah teacher It means discovering in your charge, in your disciple, in your pupil, what makes them unique. It's not just giving them the general Torah. It's helping them discover their own individual corner of Torah. That's going to be their legacy, their stamp on their link back to Sinai. And when you accept the role of being a teacher, you're accepting the responsibility of helping this person achieve eternal life linking themselves back all the way to Sinai and you're committing yourself to follow them to some city in the event that they are an accidental murderer that's what you've accepted upon your shoulders the Talmud actually advises if you see someone's a little reckless and you know what they may be a candidate to end up in one of those cities maybe don't accept them as A pupil. But the definition of the relationship between a Torah teacher and a Torah student is this is the bond that's going to help foster another link in this grand and noble and glorious chain all the way back to Sinai. And the Torah has to connect with the student on such a deep, fundamental, and individualized level that they're able to discover what is their unique role, what's their unique contribution, what's their unique interpretation, what was the part of the signed revelation that was different when it was given to them versus the person standing to the right and left. I think this is a complete reshaping of what Torah study is all about. I think it completely reinvents for us the idea of a relationship between a teacher and a student. Just as the nation entering the land, they were told that Moshe is the teacher of all of Israel, but for this particular generation, they need something a little bit different. They need someone who spoke a little bit different. They needed Joshua. And the language that Moshe used was a little bit off for this particular generation, and that's why it was important to remove Moshe from his post and to allow Joshua to lead the nation into the land. There must be a fit between leader, between teacher, and disciple, and flock. What is Torah supposed to do to us? It has to penetrate us. It has to fuse with us. It has to harmonize with us to such a degree that we're able to achieve within it something absolutely unique. And as a result, it's imperative for us to get this right every generation has its leader that's suitable. Every individual has a teacher, has a way of studying that connects with them on an individual and personal level. They all have their own unique way. Everyone has their own unique way to learn. And this is a matter of life and death. Okay, let's get to this sweets. exquisite insight. You may recall from last year Parsha's va'eshhanon. This is Parsha. I told y'all about a book written hundreds of years ago on the first couple of verses of our Parsha. The Parsha begins, of course, with Moshe talking about how he pleaded before God, please allow me to enter the land. And God said, no. And we have this book called the Meghala Amutas, the revealer of depths where he offers 252 different interpretations of what exactly the dialogue was between Moshe and God. What was Moshe saying? What was he doing? How did God respond? And last year I suggested that maybe we'll do a tradition. Every year we will talk about one of these essays, one of these incredible essays, 252 essays, think about it. (laughs) <laughs> the Torah is so vast. The Torah is so infinite that you have 252 different essays about five, six verses in the Torah. It's a thick book. It's a real thick book, and it's just about, you know, an exchange between Moshe and God. And this is one of the fundamental books of the Kabbalistic literature In the generation after the Arizal, last year we did on the Parsha podcast of this week in an episode titled Entry Denied, we did essay number four. This week I read like 20 of them to try to find one of them that I A, understand, B, can hopefully explain in less than 10 hours, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. Some of them I read, I'm like, if I wanted to convey this on a podcast and to explain every assumption and every idea that he just writes so quickly, it would take me 10, it would legitimately take me 10 hours to convey this. So I found in essay number 32, it was short. It was not so intricate. It wasn't so nuanced and esoteric. I figured I will share this in this week's exquisite insight. What's Moshe saying? What's he arguing? What does he want? And what is God responding to his request? So he points out that Moshe is pleading to God. He is saying, let me please, Ebronah, let me please enter the land. So he points out that over the course of Moshe's tenure, there has been a few instances where Moshe said the word please, Ebronah, please, the word non, nun aleph means please. There's a few times that Moshe uses the word please and he does something wrong. All the way back in... Exodus chapter 4, this is when God initially proposes to Moshe, go to Egypt, go save your brethren, and Moshe, of course, objects, and they have the whole whole back and forth in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. At the end, Moshe says, send Aaron. This is chapter 4, verse 13. But what does he say? He says, please send with Aaron. Shlach, no, please send Aaron in my stead that was a sin with the sin of the striking of the rock in the aforementioned numbers chapter 20 moshe tells the nation shimu na please listen o oh rebellious ones this is chapter 20 verse 10 so moshe did two sins over the course of his history of his tenure using the word na meaning please And Moshe is arguing, well, there were two instances when I did something very positive, also using the word "na," which means, again, please. At the episode of the golden calf in Exodus 32, this is verse 32, so 32, 32, God tells Moshe, I'm going to kill the Jewish people, I'm going to destroy the nation, and I will make you the leader of this new Jewish nation. And Moshe responds, Please erase me from your book. Moshe put his life on the line, using the word, no, please, to save the Jewish people. And that was a time where he used the word, no, please, and that redounded to his Merit. Similarly, with the episode of the spies in Numbers chapter 14, Moshe uses the word na again. Slach na, please forgive la'avon ha'amazeh for the sin of this nation. This is Numbers 14 verse 19. So we have four instances in the past where Moshe is using the word na. Two of them are sins. Two of them are great Merits. So Moshe is making an argument to God in essay number 32 of the Mukros to explain what Moshe was arguing. na, What's he saying? Moshe is telling God, God, you are merciful. When you sit in judgment, you are merciful. If I sinned when you sent me and I said, Shlach, no, send Aaron, please. In exchange... Remember my merit by the sin of the golden calf? Remember I said, let those two na's, those two times I used the word please, once to my merit, once to my detriment, let them cancel each other out. And towards the end, when I hit the rock, I said, I said, please listen, O rebellious ones. And so that was a sin. Let's make a wash with the other na that I said when I requested forgiveness for the nation after the sin of the spies. So we have one bad na and one good na. Cancel each other out. A second version of that. Cancel each other out. And as a result, allow me to enter. Enter. And that's how Moshe starts off. Ebra na. Remove the na. I want to remove the sin. When I use the word na, I use the word please. I said it twice for a sin. Let the two times where I used that same word positively in the episode of the spies and the episode of the golden calf, let them cancel each other out. Let them atone for it. And through that, Let me cross over the Jordan. Don't consider it for me a sin. And God responded to him, Ravloch. there is more for you. There is more for you. You can't have two episodes of Nah cancel two episodes of Nah. Because there's a third time. There's a third time that you sinned with the word Nah. This is in Numbers 11. 15. In that instance, the nation was pining for meat, and Moshe used the word na as well. Let them slaughter the flock, and the sheep, and the livestock, and please kill me. This is chapter 11, verse 15. That was a sin. And therefore, Ravloch, there was more for you. There's another sin that you have, and that you cannot atone for, and therefore you will not be allowed to enter the land. I thought this was really nice, really neat, a nice deep reading of the back and forth between Moshe and God, the dialogue between Moshe and God. The whole idea, every year when I peruse this book, I am just fascinated anew at the absolute breadth of the book, how, as we know, every word of Torah, every line of Torah, every verse of Torah is really all interconnected. And therefore you could find interpretations throughout the whole Torah to explain a dialogue with Moshe and God. Absolutely fascinating. This was a, a really easy one where Moshe is trying to use a very creative solution Twice I did merits with this word nah. Twice I did sins with this word na. Let them cancel each other out. A very novel approach and how God responded to him. Sorry, doesn't work. And that is essay number 32. I feel like if, if this work would ever be translated with notes to explain everything that he's saying, it would probably take up, it's just one book. One book on five or six verses, it would take up an entire bookshelf. There's just so much richness and vastness in this work. Maybe we'll make it again a tradition next year. Please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll get together again. Parsha Khanon. And I'll try to find another essay that we can go through on this Parsha. But that's a wrap. On this edition, on this special edition of the Parsha podcast, I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. I am currently recording from my parents' dining room. The house is all empty. The neighbors are mowing their lawns, which always seems to happen when I start recording. So The doors are closed. You don't hear it. I hope not. I hope not. Thank you for listening. Have an incredible rest of your day. A fantastic, an upbeat, a cheerful rest of your week. And please, God, an incredible, sensational, terrific, stupendous Shabbos upcoming. And with the help of the Almighty, next week we will gather together again for another edition of the Parsha Podcast in good health and in great spirits. And as always, my email just says, Rabbi Walby at Gma.com. I'm looking forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.